and turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, actually we're going to be starting in Romans at the end of Romans 8. Last Sunday we completed our great 8 series. That is a series through the chapter of Romans chapter 8. And as we continue to Romans chapter 9, one thing worth mentioning is that the chapter divisions that we have in the Bible and the verse divisions were not inspired. They were not originally written. The chapter divisions were added in the 13th century and the verse divisions in the 16th century. And the reason I mention that is because many times that's helpful because it helps us to know where to go in the Bible, but other times it can be a little bit unhelpful. And I think this is one of those times because in the case of Romans 8 through 9, the beginning of Romans 9 absolutely fits with the end of Romans 8. It's a continuation of Paul's thinking. It's one long sermon, so there was no chapter divisions in this letter that he wrote to the Romans. So here we go, at the end of chapter 8. Let's look at verse 37 to give us some context for chapter 9. And plus, this is just a great passage, so we want to read this one again. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The entire chapter of Romans 8 is encouraging and uplifting. It's about what God does for us, not what we do for Him. It's loving, it's compassionate, it's merciful. We see that we're adopted into God's family. We see that there is nothing that we can do to make God love us less or more. It's amazing, amazing grace. And just when you are feeling encouraged, we get to Romans chapter 9. Look at verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, sounding pretty serious here, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And he'll go on to say that his brothers, his kinsmen, his neighbors, his family members even, had not accepted Jesus as Savior. And he's saying there that he would give it all up if only they would come to faith in Christ. He's just painted this unbelievable picture in Romans 8 of how nothing compares to Jesus. Elsewhere in Philippians 3, where he says that there is nothing that he would take over Jesus, that everything else is a pile of garbage, that it's rubbish apart from knowing Christ, that everything he does in life is to gain Christ, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Paul says these statements all the time. And then in Romans 9, though, it seems that he says, but I'd give it all up if only others would come to faith in Christ. And it sounds admirable, but it's an incredible statement. It's contradictory, or at least it seems contradictory. And if you think that seems like a contradiction, look at verse 11. Though they, who's they? They are Jacob and Esau, way back in the, way back in the Old Testament. They were um, all the way back in the book of Genesis. Though they were not yet born, 
and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, the mother, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Hmm. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Hard words. Paul said that God said, While the babies were in the womb, Jacob and Esau, I love one, I hate the other. What about John 3.16? For God so loved the world. What about all the other passages that talk about God's love? God's love for his children, God's love for the world. There's explanations for John 3.16. I don't want to get into them. They're not satisfactory, and that's not the point. Isn't Esau part of the world? How can God, who's all-loving, filled with compassion and mercy, how can he hate anyone? I mean, this is nuts. And I can almost hear some of you saying, well, if the good book says it, and it's in there, it's good enough for me. That's what it says. That's what I believe. Here's something else the good book says. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Uh Uh-oh. Looks like a contradiction. Seems like a contradiction. On one hand, it says God wills salvation for some and not others. He goes as far as to say that he hated Esau. Strong words. And then elsewhere it says, he doesn't wish for any to perish. So he wishes one thing, he wills another. It seems contradictory. Are these things contradictions? Or are they really, listen, because this could change your life. This sounds like cold doctrine. If you're here for the first time, you're thinking, I'm never coming back here. This sounds like a seminary class. Hang with it. We're about the heart here. And this will hit your heart hard if you can get this. It's an apparent contradiction. If you can grasp the theological concept of apparent contradictions and not only apply it to your head, but apply it to your heart in everyday life, not just to doctrines, but to everything you do, to the way you see the world, to the way you relate to others, to the way you relate to your spouse, to the way you argue to the opinions you hold, to your opinions of others, if you can grasp this doctrine of apparent contradictions that's all through the Scriptures, your life will be radically changed. It's a big promise. What do I mean when I say apparent contradiction? J.I. Packer, one of the good guys, he defines an apparent contradiction as an appearance of contradiction between conclusions which seems equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. Neither option is dispensable or comprehensive. Neither explanation 
is avoidable. We do not invent it, and we can't explain it. In other words, when it comes to this doctrine, God orders and controls all things. We say that when we say that God is the blessed controller of all things, that he holds the whole world in his hands, that he's all-powerful. We say these things. And then when we get to passages like this, we say, well, is God's grace really that amazing? Is it truly that amazing that he orders and controls all things? Humans and their actions, the catechism question that's widely accepted by all Christians in different forms, that God's providence is that he controls all creatures and all of their actions. Yet, man is responsible for every single choice he makes. To our finite minds, that is inexplicable. Apparent contradictions are not contradictions at all. They are contradictions to our human mind, but in the mind of God, they are perfectly harmonious. That's what we have here with God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Because the fact is, is that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign, not us. That it is God who adopts, we don't adopt ourselves. It is God who predestines, not us. That God chooses us from the beginning, from the foundation of the world. In fact, the Bible teaches that we can't even do anything spiritual because we're dead until we are given a new heart, until we are resurrected. And then even then when our spiritual hearts are resurrected, then we are given the gift of faith, Ephesians 2. We were dead in our sins. And we are resurrected, and we are even given faith, that gift. Ephesians 1 says that God chose us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. Romans 8.29 says that we were predestined. Predestined means to determine beforehand. There's not a lot of explanation on that. Regardless of your belief on this, and honestly, we don't really get to decide what we believe and what we don't when it comes to the Scriptures. Did God have a chosen people in the Old Testament? Of course He did. He is a chosen people now. His royal priesthood, you are my chosen people. It's all through Scripture. And doesn't that play out practically? Even when we give our testimonies, if you knew Jesus, you look back and you say, God was drawing me here, and he was doing this in my life, and he was doing that in my life. It doesn't matter which side you are on, if you have a dog in the fight at all, when you talk about how God draws you, you're always talking about his action and not your own. But doesn't that sound like we're robots? I mean, if God's already worked it all out, why bother doing anything? Why bother sharing our faith? Is that really love? For God to kind of force himself on us? Is that really what it's saying? Well, here's the contradiction or the apparent one. Because Scripture also teaches not only is God sovereign, but man is responsible to choose. 
I'm going to offend everybody today. <laughs> Man is held accountable for whether or not he believes in Christ. Christians are to boldly share our faith, and it matters whether we share our faith and call people to repentance or not, even though God has already chosen. That singing, I have decided to follow Jesus, is biblical because we are commanded to decide to follow Jesus. To choose life by following God's will, Deuteronomy 20. That God is always inviting us in. That God is not forcing us. That Jesus said, come to me, all ye who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I mean, imagine if you're a non-Christian and you see a door to eternal life. And that door promises eternal life. And on top of the doorway is the verse from Revelation 22:7, whosoever will, let him come in. And so you see that door, and you're trying to make a decision. It's offering salvation. It's open for you to walk through it, but you choose not to. Instead, choosing destruction. You made that choice. You're responsible for that choice. But let's say you see the door and it's inviting you to walk through to eternal life and it says on the top, whosoever will come, let him come in. And you say, I'm going inside. I'm accepting that invitation. And you enter the door and it shuts behind you. And you look behind you on the door and you see written on the back side of the door, you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Whosoever will come, Come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden. Choose you this day whom you will serve on the front. And then as you go in, you look back and you see, you didn't choose me. I chose you. My dad, as pastor of this church for many, many years, he had the best illustration of these two doctrines. Because here's what we do is we line up on one side or the other. We get offended when we hear predestination, and then others get offended when we hear any equivocation at all from that. You know, um, And really, it's both. It's both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And he had the best illustration. He said you need to think of them as parallel lines. Parallel lines don't meet, theoretically. So there are parallel lines during life, And somewhere in eternity, they're going to cross, and we'll understand it in eternity. Until then, they're two parallel lines. In other words, both God's sovereignty in choosing and human responsibility in choosing are both true. Isn't that a contradiction? A logical fallacy? Or is it an apparent contradiction? I mean, here's what's humorous to me about the debates over this issue. Because we get all worked up over this, maybe some of you don't, and yet the Christian faith is filled with apparent contradictions. Our faith is an apparent contradiction. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. 100% God, 100% God, 100% God. That's 300%. How is that possible? That's an apparent contradiction. God is 100% imminent, meaning 100% close, closer than a brother. 
living in your heart. And yet, he is 100% transcendent, far off, wholly other, unknowable. Both are true. Not 50-50, 100%, 100%, an apparent contradiction. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. He wasn't 50% of each. We spent the first 400 years of church history figuring all that out and saying, no, it's not like he's 40%, 60%. It's that he is 100% man, 100% God. That doesn't make sense. Another apparent contradiction. Here's one for you. This will bend your minds a little bit and maybe cause some discussion over lunch. Was Jesus peckable or impeccable? Peckable means... Was he able to sin? Impeccable means he was unable to sin. Be careful how you answer. Because if he was unable to sin, impeccable, then what did he really do? What did he really accomplish? If it was already determined, if he couldn't sin at all. But if he was peccable, if he could sin, we're talking about God. So which is it? Apparent contradiction. And the most perplexing and brutal and in times like these relevant apparent contradictions. How can an all-powerful, all-loving, gracious God allow a school shooting like we saw this past week? 17 kids. To say that's an apparent contradiction isn't close to be adequate. It's not even close. How can a sovereign, good, loving, all-wise, pure, and holy God allow evil at all? Where did evil come from? How is it that he allows it? How is it that we can say that he is providential, that he controls all of his creatures and all their actions, and say that he's not the author of evil? How can we say that? If God, why evil? How is it okay that God seemed to have lifted his restraining grace? And listen, if God is omnipresent, then we would have to say he was present in those hallways during that shooting. How can we believe that? I mean, what an apparent contradiction that is. And so I, you know, find it humorous that we seem to pick one or two little apparent contradictions in Scripture and we spend our days arguing over those when every doctrinal truth is an apparent contradiction. It's all supernatural compared to the natural. All of it. If God, why evil? Because even Paul admitted that this life is one filled with apparent contradictions. After he pours out his heart trying to explain to us the gospel in every way he knows how, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, justification, sanctification, all of it, I've told you that 1 through 11 is a large section of Paul diagnosing the problem in 1 through 3 and showing us our deliverer in 3 through 11. And then he's going to show us what a Christian life looks like in 12 through 16. But at the end of 11, when he finally comes to the end, He says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable 
his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And then he finally gives up the ghost on this section. Amen. Basically saying these are deep, deep, deep mysteries. Even if you're not going through anything difficult right now, you still need to grasp this truth of apparent contradictions. Because once you grasp it, it applies to everything in your life. Everything. It frees you. It frees you from being right all the time. It frees you from never saying you're sorry. It frees you to see others' opinions when you're just baffled. You're hearing their opinions and you're thinking, that can't possibly be true. It frees you in marriages. It frees you from seeing everything in black and white while still having strong convictions. It frees you to say, I'm wrong, to apologize, or I could possibly be wrong. So when considering apparent contradictions, if God, why evil, isn't it pie in the sky to explain it at all? There is an answer, and it's not a pat answer. Paul gives us the answer to if God, why evil? in this passage, and it's beautiful, and we're going to get to it next Sunday. But as you can probably guess, the answer has a lot to do with Jesus. You know, we've been shooting short videos called Reach Stories, and these stories tell the story of how some of you um, came to the church and what the church has meant to you. They've just been beautiful stories. And it's been so encouraging to see our people getting nothing but Jesus. It's really getting into our souls, getting into our hearts, considering it, seeing it changing lives. And the person, one of the people in our most recent video said she's come to believe that nothing but Jesus isn't a tagline, but a lifestyle. I thought that was so good. It's not a tagline, but a lifestyle. Because if we answer the problem of evil with a pat answer, like, well, Jesus is the answer, or nothing but Jesus is the answer, and if that doesn't radically change our lives and our hearts, we've just given a tagline and a pat answer, but it's so much more beautiful than that. Paul said in verse 3, I would give up my own salvation, my own salvation, if those around me would come to faith in Jesus, think about that statement. Are your political views, your opinions about guns or mental health or whatever it may be, are those opinions more important than souls? Paul said he'd give up his salvation. I don't get that. Just so others would come to faith. What would you give up? What would I give up? What would you give up when it comes to an argument with your spouse? Kids, what would you give up when it comes to submitting to your parents and obeying your parents? Would you give up anything important in your life for the cause of Christ? 
Do you share that longing of Paul that I would even give up my own salvation if these people would just come to know Jesus? Or is it if these people would come around on guns or on this or on that? Paul was desperate for people to get Jesus. That's why in Romans 10, 15, Paul said, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We have good news to bring. And the good news is desperately needed today. We are in a bad spot as a country. If God, why evil? The answer is, can't be solved by laws. But listen, laws are good. God uses laws. So for us to say, well, laws aren't going to do any good, that's unbiblical because God uses laws to order society. But it won't be solved by that. It won't be solved by mental health care, even though mental health care is important. It won't be solved by kids walking out of school. There's talk that Kids are trying to organize a walkout until politicians act on gun control. Because any thinking person would stand back from this great evil that we're seeing, looking at the situation, logically even, and you would stand back and say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to do? We can do this, we can do that, but what about that? We're in a spot. The cat's out of the bag. There's not really a whole lot of solutions when it comes to the natural way of solving things, even though we should try. The cat's out of the bag when it comes to guns, pro or con. They're out there. It's about the heart. And if you just leave it at that, well, it's about the heart. You know, guns don't kill people. People kill people and then you don't do anything, and that's trash. Of course you should do something. It's about the heart, and it's about giving them Jesus. Not our opinions. We are not desperate for Jesus anymore. The evangelical church at large, you look at the whole thing, we have nothing to offer when it comes to this except for our political opinions, aligning with this guy or that guy. And there's no solutions in any of that. The only solution is door-to-door, heart-to-heart, sharing, brokering the gospel to hearts one at a time. Nothing but Jesus. There's never been a clearer time where I've looked at a situation and I've said, nothing but Jesus. There's nothing that's going to solve this except for Jesus, and you can't leave it at that, you have to study Jesus Monday through Saturday. It can't just be this morning and go door to door. I'm not saying literally, I'm saying door to door in your life, reaching out. Is it true that this, this teenager who was lonely, who was depressed, whatever it may be, that's not an excuse because that's what we're saying now, that that's kind of the excuse. Terrible thing to say. But isn't it true though that if people came around him, maybe if people would come around him this, and shared the gospel with him and, and hung with him in tough discipleship 
and I don't know about his parents or whatever, but his parents in committing to committing him to the church and to people pouring into his life, isn't it true that it could have maybe been stopped? You'd have to say yes, or you don't believe in the power of the gospel. Paul said it. If God, why evil, Paul said in verse 17, in order that my power may be shown through all the earth, that my purpose in election, which is to glorify Jesus, might stand. You know, when we come to the table and we think about the words that Jesus said, he took bread and he gave thanks for it and then he broke it and then he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this, eat this. And then he said, this is my body given for you. This is my body. This, this bread is my body. And so for hundreds of years, the church believed that this becomes the actual, literal body of Christ. Because that's what Jesus said, this is my body. And a large portion of the church still believes that today. And so we're not that weird here. I mean, that's kind of weirdo stuff, right? This is just bread. We're not going to be eating flesh. We're more weird. Because you know what we say? We say that what I just did, that this is my body, it's not the physical body, that's at the right hand of God. It's the spiritual body of Christ, that it is that. It's not a symbol, it does that. It doesn't represent his body. It is his spiritual body. That's an apparent contradiction. That's what we do here. (laughs) That's what the faith is. It's an apparent contradiction. We go all the way with this is his spiritual body while still saying it's ordinary bread. How are those two things true? The supernatural and the natural. And if we can grasp that as a church in our lives, watch out. We just hang on so much to the natural, so much. We're going to fix things this way and that way, this politician, that politician. I'm going to do this in my marriage and that in my marriage. Anything but Jesus, anything but Jesus. I like him on Sunday, not so much during the week. Instead of supernaturally. Some of you need a supernatural touch in your marriages. Falling apart today. A supernatural touch in your finances, in your health, in your relationships, whatever it is. He says, come. And then after supper, he took the cup, and it was a cup of wine, and he said, this is my blood. Take it. Drink it. That's pretty disgusting, pretty weird. But it gets weirder because then we say it's actually his spiritual blood. Apparent contradiction. You know, as we came in today, the graphic that we've been using on the screen for the verses is a blurred graphic. It's a blurred um, painting. It doesn't look like much. It just looks like a swirl. And that's blurred. But when you go to the next 
slide, if you could, and we see what it is, it's really a crown of thorns artistically drawn with a black hole in the middle. Isn't that what life is? We're saved by grace alone. There's so much joy in that. But then there's that crown of thorns that's with us. 